What inspires business leaders to take their startups to the next level? What helped their dreams to become reality? This is Meet the Makers, a City podcast series produced by EI Studios, the award-winning custom division of Economist Impact. My name is Sam Shaw, a journalist and presenter specializing in business, finance, and technology. In this four-part series, I'll be speaking to founders and CEOs of global SMEs to hear their unique stories of how they built and grew their businesses. In our fourth and final episode of Meet the Makers, we're looking at sustaining long-term growth. We'll be unpacking the practicalities of the circular economy, talking about overcoming economic adversity, and covering how to manage and sustain growth while remaining true to your values. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Tom Sackey, who founded TerraCycle in 2001 during his first year at Princeton University. Since then, he has overseen its growth and established it as a world leader in essentially recycling the unrecyclable, as well as recycled content and reuse. Headquartered in New Jersey, TerraCycle has been named in the top 10 of Fortune's list of companies changing the world. Its partner companies currently include Procter & Gamble, Nestle, PepsiCo and Unilever. And today, TerraCycle employs over 500 people in 21 countries. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for making the time today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and no, I really appreciate your time. I want to take you back to the beginning, if I may. So the story goes that in your first year at university, you set up the company making plant food from leftover cafeteria waste, which you affectionately refer to as the worm poop years. Um, I'm really curious. Talk me through that. How does it work? Absolutely. So uh, how TerraCycle started, in fact, our logo, I drew as a worm, if you will, you know, eating itself. That's how it all came. And TerraCycle is Terra, Earth, and Cycle, you know, cycling. And we were very much a worm poop company. We basically took organic waste. Uh, and, you know, today we still throw out 50% of the food we produce. So it's a huge, huge issue. Fed it to worms, produced what you would officially call worm castings. You know, we left terming it as worm poop then liquefying that, effectively making it into a tea, and packaging it quite literally in new soda bottle. So we made a product from and packaged out of garbage, and that's how the whole company began. You know, we started selling that to uh, lawn and garden retailers, and were able to grow and find our feet and learn, you know, how to run a business on the back of this idea of waste. Um, the business has moved in a few different directions since then. So can you cast your mind back and remember what your ambitions looked like initially following those early stages? Yeah. What got me interested in this whole worm poop thing to begin with wasn't as much to become a fertilizer company, which is why it also was easy to pivot as we learned. Instead, you know, for me, I've always loved entrepreneurship from a very young age. I felt like it was my personal way to achieve the American dream, you know, in a realistic way for who I am. And, you know, in university, I really thought about this idea of what is the role of profit. And I felt uninspired by the purpose of business just being to maximize profit for stakeholders, which is typically how it's presented, you know, just make lots of money for shareholders. And I wanted to think about business as a engine for good and profit more of an indicator of health. So if you're profitable, you'll flourish and grow and do more good. And if you're not, then unfortunately, you know, that won't occur. So in thinking about looking for purposeful business ideas, I really fell in love still to this day with the topic of waste because it has so many odd anomalies to it. Now, just to give you a few, right? We learn in economics all the time about supply and demand curves. But the idea of waste doesn't show up on any supply and demand curve because it has massive supply, but negative demand. 
In fact, it's an object that you are willing to pay to get rid of, which in some countries like Japan is the legal definition of waste. It's also one of the biggest industries in the world. In fact, it will own everything you possess one day, with no exception. Every object we possess will be property of a garbage company. I mean, that's a huge concept. And for how big that is, isn't it odd that it's also the least innovative industry per dollar of revenue it enjoys? And these are just two anomalies, and it goes on and on. So I was like really into this from this, wow, you know, it's a huge thing to solve and filled with all these interesting problems and very devoid of innovation. And it just happened that worm poop in a soda bottle was the first sort of derivative, if you will, to get into it. Now, for us, we pivoted because when you make a product and you're a product business, the product is the business hero. And so, yes, we were making a product out of waste, but we were picking the best waste so we can make the best product. We were choosing used soda bottles that were not crushed. They were still fully formed, uh, which means we couldn't go after the really um, damaged bottles. We were even choosing certain types of organic waste versus others because I mean, as you know, when you travel, when you eat different food, you poop different poop, and that actually affects the flowers differently that uh, you're trying to fertilize. And so we were picking, honestly, the best of the garbage. And we weren't going to address the really stinky, nasty stuff like dirty diapers, cigarette butts, all this stuff. And so five years in, we had this big realization that we needed to shift the business hero from being the output to the input. And that's how we then effectively rejigger TerraCycle to what it is today, where we said, first, let's start with how do we recycle then how do we help companies make their stuff from garbage? And then let's shift from a disposable-based economy, where recycling is the best, to a reuse-based economy, where we can really eliminate, I think, the root cause of waste, which is this idea of throwing things away after a short use. Great. Were there any kind of key milestones along that way, you know, in those early stages, or perhaps even more recently, that you could identify? Absolutely. I mean, the first biggest one was honestly as a worm poop company. And we were at that point, you know, five, six million in sales. I dropped out of school to completely shut that down and relaunch as a recycling company. That was a massive, massive and disruptive pivot. You know, it, uh, it had to force us to change our team in many cases, change our outlook. And it took a lot to get through that. Um, I would say more recently, you know, a big pivot that started for us now, maybe four or five years ago, was this idea of how do we go beyond recycling? Not that we're stopping that at all, but to build and think about major investments into reuse. Um, and even most recently, the launch of our new discovery division, which has the thesis that certain waste streams carry diagnosable samples. And what can you learn from the fecal matter on a diaper or the blood on a menstrual product and so on? Perfect. Okay. And when you were setting your growth targets and your growth trajectory, because obviously this episode is looking at sustaining long-term growth, what kind of factors did you have to consider when you've got, like you say, these anomalies in terms of the underlying principles to deal with? You know, as an entrepreneur, especially as a venture-funded entrepreneur, maybe one that wants to go public one day, growth is incredibly important, right? It's just what everyone expects. And in now doing this for 20 years and actually achieving straight revenue growth for all those 20 years, I think there's two key learnings I've had. One is you have to be core to your mission or you lose your center. For us, it's one thing, eliminate the idea of waste. But how you go achieve that, I think you need to be very flexible on and be open to learning and adapting and maybe stopping to do something that you used to do to make room to do something in a new way while holding on to that center. And so while our revenue has grown every year for 20 years, the makeup of that revenue has certainly evolved. Now, I'd say the evolutions were bigger in the early days, and now it's more add-ons than fundamental evolutions, but that was really, really important. Another part, and this is, I think, a message to anyone who's looking to do sustainability or purposeful business, is 
not just to trade on your purpose. In other words, our purpose is, you know, solve waste. So when we first would go into companies and say, oh, we can come up with a solution to recycle diapers, or we can come up with a solution to make diapers reusable. That's our purpose. We needed to really reframe that to be, how can investing in our purpose help you win on your purpose, which may be as simple as win market share in the diaper industry. And that realization was incredibly important because that's what then allows for companies to lean in and invest in sustainability, which is effectively a synonym for investing into externalities that you're not legally responsible to invest into. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you about the way that you select the corporate partners you work with. How much of that purpose conversation is part of that selection process? This was a very interesting debate for us earlier. And let me just tell you the punchline of where we landed is we will work with anyone. To put a point on that, TerraCycle, you know, partners with big tobacco, uh, big oil, I mean, you name it. Because we said we are not the right ones to make a judgment call on what company is good or bad. If they are legally operating, you know, we're not going to work with an illegal entity, of course. But if it's a legal entity, then we will support them as long as the investment is to move towards more circularity. So we get funding from the tobacco industry to help collect and recycle cigarette butts. And we've done almost a billion cigarette butts have been collected off the street and recycled through our system and so on and so forth. Because we found that every single product in the world, no matter if it feels benevolent, like organic yogurt, has externalities. Organic yogurt produces lots of methane through the, uh, the uh, raising of cows and creates deforestation through moving uh, forests into pasture land. Everything has externalities. And so we needed to focus on making sure that we can bring everyone along to step forward into making their products and their systems more circular and to achieve this idea of waste reduction. And so that's been our central approach. And it's really been cemented in that the only services we provide to organizations are ones that further recycling, recycled content, or uh, reuse. And I know when you've got so many different corporate partners that operate in so many different sectors, how do you maintain oversight? Because I know accountability must be really, really integral to the work that you do. Absolutely. So in all of our platforms, we usually learn what you would call B2B to B2C models. So we are platforms, if you will. So let's say you're making razor blades, you would partner with us, and we would launch your razor blade recycling program in a number of countries, and we happen to be the operating system. But you, the client, choose how convenient should that be, how big should it be, how should you market it, so on and so forth. And so what we do is, of course, we make all that available, and then we guide companies on what are the good decisions to make or what are decisions to be more cautious on. And this is where also we then encourage external stakeholders to this discussion, um, consumers, uh, lawmakers, uh, NGOs, to also help nudge the organizations to do these things as responsible a way as absolutely possible. And that means in something like the world like recycling, make programs as big and convenient as absolutely possible to give access to everyone uh, who's out there. And that's why all these other stakeholders become really, really important, right? So we need to make sure as a platform provider in these solutions, that the organizations are using these to further uh, the cause that we're all here working. Sorry, the obvious question for this, because it just sounds like such a win-win-win. I mean, why isn't everybody kind of going this route? Is it just the expense of it? It's just cost. I mean, let's take a, a simple example, right? What actually makes something recyclable is not the technical ability to recycle it. It's not the equipment you run it through or the mousetrap, if you will. It's simply, can you make money on it? So an aluminum can, the value and the weight of that aluminum in one can is enough to fund the cost of collecting and processing it. But if you take a coffee capsule that also has aluminum in it, the value of the aluminum in that coffee capsule offsets 
half a percent of the cost of collecting and recycling that entire capsule. And so circular economy is entirely a money flow question. And so what we do all day, our bottleneck, if you will, is how do we find stakeholders that are willing to fund the externality of waste? And it's important to note that there's no laws forcing anyone to fund this externality. And this is the biggest existential issue of sustainability today, is that we get to harvest the earth in many ways, whether we care about deforestation, water quality, air quality, climate change, uh, species. I mean, we're living in the middle of a mass extinction, garbage just being one of many vectors. We get to do all this damage as companies without being legally responsible to fix it. And so in most of these cases, actors like myself, what we have to do is we have to somehow convince stakeholders to fund what they're not legally responsible to fund. And that's the entire essence of, uh, of how, you know, what we think about and what we have to solve for to create that perpetual growth. And you know, in voluntary programs, a big component of that is I need to empathize with you, uh, you being the client in this hypothetical example, what you care about. Maybe you care about consumer acquisition and retention. Maybe you care about employee turnover, right? I notice I didn't say sustainability. And I have to show you that by investing in sustainability, you are going to then improve those vectors you care about. And the more I do that, the more you're going to say, let's fund this and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, obviously, that conversation is so omnipresent at the moment. But when you first started out, you know, in those early worm poop years, how aware were you that this is where we were headed? Was it or did that kind of awareness come over time or did you have a vision at the beginning? I always have cared about this topic personally. And I, w I was always very disappointed in how little other people seem to care. I always felt disproportional in the amount of effort we put out versus the growth we achieved. Yes, we were growing, but never felt like it was equal to the effort. And I can pinpoint it for you. In late 2017, early 2018, you can measure this in many vectors, the world woke up. That was when the turtle with a straw up its nose started trending on, uh, on social media. It's when Blue Planet 2 came out with David Attenborough. It's when Greta came onto the scene. All these things simultaneously happened in the world, woke up and said, my God, we are living in a garbage crisis, along with other environmental issues as well. But in my world, garbage, you know, is, is the key thing that we looked at. And they never shut their eyes. And the growth exploded at that time. It was so important because sustainability is not a mandatory product or service people need to buy. It is voluntarily asking folks to deal with these existential threats where you're not getting anything back. It's the planet that's winning, right? You're not getting a product back or an object that you can own and enjoy or consume. So that's when it really shifted. And we noticed this in a, in, in a phenomenal way across all stakeholders. You know, legislators started passing more legislation. Now, for example, in France, you, if you walk into a fast food restaurant, you must be served in reusable packaging if you're eating it. That's a new thing as of just this January. Or banning the straw, banning plastic bags all the new extended product responsibility legislation. So we saw it in legislation. We saw it in corporate actors taking it more seriously. We saw it in consumer sentiment. And I think it's really important to maintain this level of interest in the topic because that's what galvanizes the ability for sustainability-driven organizations like TerraCycle to succeed. And I think it's important that there's a good ecosystem of these sort of organizations. And on that note, it's really not good what's happening this year in 2023 because of the banking crisis and the macroeconomic crisis. A lot of the younger organizations in the sustainability space are running out of oxygen and aren't finding it easy to access capital, really. 
Yeah, it's probably a really good point to bring that in, actually. When you were looking, you know, when you were speaking to your banking partners, um, how were they selected? Did they have to share these kind of values? Absolutely. You know, so when we look at access of capital, we really focus on impact investors, you know, folks that are interested in the capital returns, but also the return on non-capital matters. Like for us, it's benefit to the environment first, followed by societal benefit. Um, a lot of our programs raise money for charities and so on, but our primary reason of existence is an environmental reason. And it's really important to find investors that will value both of those pieces because they are the ones who will benefit the most from making a capital injection into our organization. And so when we go out and raise private capital, we're now contemplating what a public offering may look like. Maybe in a few years, we're now getting ready for it. All the different folks in the financial system that support us in doing that, that's our number one question first, because we need to have that alignment to get the right type of capital in that will be patient with the way we make decisions, that will be empathetic you know, to how we want to guide and not just focused on short-term capital return. Uh, we will give capital return. There's no question. You have to have that because profit is an indicator of health. But we also look at these other indicators and there has to be empathy for that. Yeah, sure. When things do start to move off track that are not TerraCycle's responsibility, that are external, how do you cope with that both as a business and also with those partners that you work with? I think we have to have fundamentals. You know, I think this is one of the things that we saw in the readjustment in the, uh, in the public markets, right? If you look at the IPOs of some wonderful organizations, Oatly, Beyond Meat, Rent the Runway, and so on, they achieved very high valuations, but they were on this trend of growth becoming a more important vector than profit. And that's what the capital markets valorized. And what happened in this reset is the exact inverse. Fundamentals became the more important and growth is secondary. And unfortunately, a lot of those companies have lost a lot of market share as a result. So that was a great learning for us. We turned profitable in 2015 and our priorities, first and foremost, if you worked in our organization, is fundamentals first. We have to every year finish profitable. We don't have to maximize profit, but we have to maintain profitability. That's a mandatory, and we will have to make difficult decisions if need be to get there. Then second, grow revenue. And then third, grow diversity. And for us, diversity is across three vectors. We're in 20 countries, so one vector is geographic diversity. The second is diversity in clients. You know, We don't let any client ever be more than half a percent of our business. And then another diversity is a business model so that we have lots of different offerings. And that's created what I would call a very robust immune system, immune to external uh, vectors. Now, diversity also in, uh, creates complexity, which is a cost. And so that's a very important balance of how much complexity and cost do you bear because you have a lot more back office expense you know, to allocate against all, right? You know, the, the back office always wants to tell you, can you just find one product that you can sell like crazy or one service? But that's like running a monoculture on a farm. And that farm does not have a good immune system. When it comes to hiring and retaining the right people, I imagine that when you are a values-led business, especially with such long-term ambitions as you've described, how does the hiring process work for you? What do you look for? We look first and foremost for passion to the topic. We are really allergic to someone who may have the perfect skill set, but doesn't care about the issue. That won't work with us in the long run, again, because we have to steward for multiple vectors, then just profit maximization. And so we look for passion of the topic. Then we look at skill set, because you can always teach skill. You can't teach passion. Passion is you're in love or not, but I can't teach you to fall in love, but I can teach you, you know, how to run a certain function or how to run a certain you know, skill, if you will. 
And what's nice is in sustainability, it naturally attracts diversity. So we do have, you know, diversity policies and these sort of things, but I think most of it is naturally occurring. We're 60% female, for example, 50% female in leadership and many other diversity, you know, the vectors, not just sex like male or female, uh, but also, you know, age and race and so on. Um, and what I'm really proud of beyond the diversity that we have in many cases naturally occurring is the tenure of our team members. We have about 500 employees that are office-based. Our average tenure is over three years. And many of our folks are here for 15, 20 years. You know? So that's really important because we can show growth in the organization you know, from starting as an intern to running a department. And we can really build this unique way of thinking because we run our business very, very uniquely. And there's a tradecraft to that that takes some time to, uh, to understand. Now, the biggest sort of lesson I've learned in purposeful entrepreneurship is many times your team members are coming in for purpose, naturally, right? Like they're here to help save the planet. And that's really important. But you may need to then help teach them how to be empathetic to a client that is focused on market share maximization or footfall if you're a retailer. And how do you bridge those two? That's why I said, you know, early on, like our biggest lesson was to sell purpose to an organization, like invest in a recycling program or invest in recycled content or whatever, become reusable. Um, we need to show them how that will pay off in the things they care about versus just saving the planet. And that's a very big lesson that we try to teach young inbound team members uh, where this may be their first role uh, or second role in their career. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And what about your own personal support network? You've talked about obviously the business partners and the banking partners that you've drawn on, but what about from a more personal perspective or work-life balance for, for want of a better phrase? To me, it's, it's family. I have a, an incredible uh, wife who is very supportive in allowing me to be able to you know, do what I do. And uh, we have four uh, children, all very small, between the age of two weeks and seven years. And uh, it allows me to have a great balance between work and non-work, right? So I don't work on the weekends, but I come in every day because it creates such a delineation between my work life and my personal life. So once I'm home, I don't open the computer or only in a very rare circumstance. And I found that getting very diluted when I was a work from home, you know, in the high COVID times, I couldn't as much create that line. And I think for me, that support of creating balance and perspective is all linked to my family. Busy, busy guy. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self if you were to go back in time? I'm laughing. I would give myself the, uh, all the mistakes I've made, you know, and, and pass along a great book of here's all the learnings because for me, um, the more you innovate, the more mistakes you make. And I think actually the more innovative you are, the more chance there is for mistakes to occur. Uh, we always try to, uh, when we have a, a, a meeting where we're debriefing an error or a mistake, we always start the meeting by saying, okay, we have now invested intuition, invested our time, our resources, whatever we screwed up. And that's like an investment intuition because when you go to school, you invest and you're not going to produce anything at all. It's all academic, right? All your papers will never see the light of day other than a professor grading them. And so... The same way you can embrace a mistake. And I would give myself that whole learning set and get to where I am today much quicker. Um, if I had to give one lesson, it would be this idea that the way to convince someone to take on purposeful activity is to show them how it will benefit the things they care about with incredible empathy, not just understanding, but really deep empathy. You know? And because that was something that took me a while to learn. And once we learned it, it really unlocked the ability to scale. And what would be one or two of those mistakes you found the hardest to get over? It would be very, you know, sort of specific project-based, right? So 
you know, maybe when we thought people would collect this type of waste and they didn't, uh, how we would have uh, rejiggered that or if, you know, what type of incentive we would need to give to create this behavior. It's these sort of like, I call them algorithm-based uh, mistakes. Um, I think other than the pivot from worm poop to where we are today, everything has been stacking on top of that. But I'm also really happy that we had such humble beginnings and starting, I mean, quite literally in the sewer because it taught us a lot about all the fundamentals and what it takes to be a product business. So that when we started serving product companies, we really had this great understanding of what are they going through day to day. Now, if I could have packaged that up and given myself that learning, I could have skipped that process, but I don't regret it looking back. And uh, just to finish off, so what, what does your long-term plan look like? You've mentioned about potential flotation. You know, you mentioned about the three aspects of the business that you'd like to diversify further, further into. Um, but what else does the long-term plan look like for you? Our dream, if you will, is to be the Google of garbage. And the thesis is based on that today, the large waste management companies, many of whom like Veolia have a minority interest in our, in our company, so we are fiscally and uh, in equity connected to them. We believe that they're just tapping into a very small part of the opportunity, what innovating in waste can bring. We think it's mostly blue ocean. And I think it's not being tapped into simply because it is not metaphorically dirty, gross, smelly, nasty. It is literally all of that, right? It is something that is the opposite of sexy. So we think there is a huge amount of opportunity to innovate. Uh, I'll give you an example, like a new division we just launched uh, into the public a few weeks ago. Our discovery division has the thesis that certain waste streams carry diagnosable samples. So now if you use that division, you can send in, for example, a used nappy of your child and the, the diaper or nappy goes to a laboratory that analyzes the microbiome in the fecal sample. And a week or two later, you get back an experience that teaches you about your child's immune system development, allergy propensity, uh, you know, all these things that you can learn off uh, the microbiome. That's how far innovation and waste can go. And so we believe that that's what we can achieve. And we have very big hopes uh, that over the coming decade or two, we'll be able to manifest that. And the strategy to do that is first and foremost, invest in what we call our tree trunk. Make sure we have good systems, good talent to be able to embrace growth. Then create as many new branches as possible in those trees so that we can uh, go after different stakeholder groups. And then third, every once in a while, plant a new tree. Recent tree was discovery. Four or five years ago, it was reuse. And let's make sure we keep pushing ourselves to do that. Well, I could talk to you all day long. It's absolutely, genuinely fascinating. So thank you so much for talking to me, Tom. It's, it's a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Well, that's all for today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our series that has brought our inspiring founders' stories to life, revealing the joys, the pain, the challenges, opportunities, and rewards of creating a company, from starting up to scaling, growing internationally, and ultimately looking for long-term sustainable growth. This was the final episode of Meet the Makers. For more information and to listen to the other episodes, visit economistimpact.com forward slash meet the makers. Thank you for listening. All opinions expressed by the participants in the Meet the Makers podcast series are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of City Commercial Bank.